Well, it's a joy to be here. I love Trinity Church. Uh, I mean, y'all may not know that, but I really do. I pray for you guys regularly and pray for Matt and Lindsay and how I've enjoyed watching them through the years as teenagers and then seeing what the Lord would do in their lives. Uh, one, just w- one thing about them, when Matt was single, I had him preach. He was doing a summer internship. I had him preach through... Uh, Ephesians, and he got to Ephesians 5, he preached one of the best sermons I've ever heard on marriage. And he was a single guy. So when we met and talked about their marriage, and his dad led the service and I assisted him, uh, I, I said, I have one requirement. The two of you have got to sit down and listen to that sermon. And you should have seen Matt just rolling over, no, not that. Uh, but uh, I have, I've loved watching them in their faithfulness to Christ and how the Lord's worked in their lives and how the Lord's worked in this congregation. Uh, we pray for you so often at Southwoods, uh, and I'm, Kira and I are grateful that we can be here this morning. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation 5. You know, the book of Revelation has taken a lot of bad raps because of people that want to find all kinds of things that they see and squeeze it into what John was writing. And I think when we do that, we may miss what John was writing. He was writing to a bunch of believers that were suffering and were going to suffer. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, he was a bad guy. And he certainly showed that with the way he treated Christians as well as others. And... So how would the church be encouraged? What John wrote in what we would call sort of science fiction language, uh, apocalyptic language is the term, but it's sort of like a a science fiction where you're, you're trying to figure out all these details. And so he's using a lot of graphic language in order to fill our imaginations so that we see and we think upon that. You know, sometimes you'll see a picture or you'll see some, uh, read a story or you'll watch something and it uses metaphors and images and pictures in order to drive a message home. That's what John does. And the message that he drove home in this particular section has been my heart and my life for a long time, but especially for the last several months. So hear the word of God, Revelation 5. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came... And took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken that book, the four living 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This is God's word. Well, on July the 2nd, minding my own business, I got a phone call from a doctor that had done a biopsy in a couple of places uh, two weeks earlier, and he told my wife and me, uh, I have bad news for you. You have mantle cell lymphoma. And I thought, mantle cell lymphoma? What in the world is that? I've never heard of that. And he said it was a rare non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And he said it's really bad. You're going to have to have some chemo immediately. I've already set up an appointment for you. This doesn't look good. Well, that made for good preparation for lunch that day, didn't it? Uh, well, fortunately, Kieran was listening on as we as we heard that news and we sat down and just trying to get our hands around it tears dripping and in the middle of that trying to pray and ask the Lord for his help and grace and the thing that struck me and I told Karen the Lord has ordered this for us for our good and for his glory and that, that started this journey that we've been on since that time. That didn't mean that we would not have any more tears or we still wouldn't have any more tears. We still have those tears. It wouldn't mean we wouldn't go through difficulty and things may not work out the way we hoped they would work out. As a matter of fact, we all live in a fallen world and we all face difficulties because of living in that fallen world. And a lot of times things just don't work out the way Everything we hoped would work out. We felt the heaviness of all of this on us. We've still felt the heaviness uh, of it uh, since meeting with doctors and having tests and feeling like they've drained about 25 gallons of blood out of, of me, checking my blood every time I walk into the door at MD Anderson. I, I get blood drained, and they're, you know, they're, they're checking it. And I've had all kinds of tests, and I'm in the middle of treatment. And it's given me time to ponder... Uh, since those days. What is the Lord doing? What is he teaching me? What is he teaching my family? What is he teaching our congregation in these days? Because I'm not suffering alone with this. This is the body of Christ joining in. Uh, Just a few days after my diagnosis, our elders and I got together and uh, Matt Slager, my associate pastor and one of our elders and and, uh, Matt's folks are with us today. Uh, reminded me about 1 Corinthians one twenty six, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And I felt that very strongly, and our family has felt that. And so whether it's me with mantle cell lymphoma or someone else with another illness or infirmity or someone carrying a deep, deep burden or someone that's going through a time where their family is just exploded and disrupted and everything has gone wrong or someone facing persecution or someone losing their job because they're a Christian, we all suffer together, hand in hand. We're learning together as brothers and sisters in Christ to rest in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where Revelation 5 comes in because John was writing to a bunch of suffering saints, plural. And in their case, 
persecution loomed, and for many of them, persecution had already landed. And so what do you do, and what would those people do, in the middle of that kind of difficulty? How would the body of Christ handle all of the sufferings that come our way living in a fallen world? Well, John has the answer in this text. And here it is very simply. When when suffering comes, let's worship the king. Now, how do you worship in the middle of suffering? I mean, how do you do that? You cannot unless you get a really good glimpse of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what John helps us to do in this very vivid picture So let's reflect on it. I I have about uh, seven statements I want to make, and then we'll work our way through. And I'm I'm just going to follow the text. The first thing, there's a book in the right hand of the one on the throne. Now, if we read chapter 4, we see this picture of one sitting on the throne. and He's describing the Almighty, and he does it in such a way that his language cannot fathom what he sees. There is, some, there is one on the throne who is brilliantly glorious and transcendent. He's served by the representatives of all the ages and all of creation. We see that in verses 2 through 4. And the four living creatures cry out day and night, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. But then you move into verse 1 and you find that John sees something, and he uses this apocalyptic language, this science fiction type of language, and and says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and outside, on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, what's in this book? Well, let's just notice some things about it. It's written inside and on the back, typically because uh, the material used for writing in those days, had one smooth surface in the backside. You just couldn't write it. It would be like writing on tree bark. But in this picture, John is showing completeness, that every detail is written because it's written inside and on the back. And he uses what is called a divine passive. Uh, and the, the, the verb that it was written was pointing to the Lord God himself wrote it, And it was written in such a way that there are no details left out. The Lord has done it all. All of his purposes, all of his plans, everything that has to do with redemption, everything that has to do with judgment, everything that has to do with the the details of our lives, the Lord wrote it. And it's authenticated because it's sealed up with these seven seals. And it's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's the hand of authority. In other words, he is the one that can accomplish what he has purposed to do. The problem is in our day, we tend to think that we write the story of our own lives. Uh, We think that because of the family in which we were brought up, the schools that we attend, the, the person we marry or will marry, or the job that we have, the church that we're part of, that we form all those things. We just kind of make things happen. We decide what kind of house we'll live in and what kind of car we want to drive, food we want to eat, where we want to go on vacation, who we want to hang around, ventures we want to pursue. And in one sense, our personalities and our background and our experience and our education and our relationships and our circumstances all seem to affect the way our lives are charted. 
But what John is telling us is behind it all, there is one that has purposed and planned and will orchestrate details for our lives so that we learn that this life is not about this life as much as it's about eternity with him. Now, far too often, we have these flimsy thoughts of God. We, uh, we think of him as some kind of, yeah, he, he's the creator, yeah, he's a redeemer, but we, we consider him just a little bit above us. And somehow or another, we control with our wills what he is and what he can do and what he cannot do. Just read the book of Job and then say that. It, it won't fly. You remember that Job was complaining about everything that was going on and the Lord rebuked him and, uh, and said, uh, Job, who has instructed me? Was it you that was planning all this stuff in creation? Was it you that carried this out? No, it wasn't you at all. Not even Satan could breach the sacred wall of God's guidance and protection over Job unless the Lord purposed it and allowed it. And when he does that, he does it for his glory and he does it for our good so that we begin to get glimpses of what is ahead for us in relationship to the Lord God. Now, he sits on the throne. Why does he sit on the throne? Because he rules and he reigns and there is no one, there's no government, there's no nation, there's no coalition of nations or peoples that can usurp his rule. And so in chapter 4, verse 11, this heavenly audience joins in a chorus saying, Worthy are you, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And what John is doing, he's tipping us off to the reality that God's rule is not blind, it is not partially obscured, it's not left to chance, it's not abandoned by the whims of humanity. I mean, we can complain about the rule of God, and maybe you have. Well, an ant can make a complaint against a tank and shake its fist at that tank, can it? It won't do any good. That ant is going to get crushed by it, but it can certainly do that. What, what we're to learn to do, though, when those, those times come, brothers and sisters, if they haven't already come, they're going to come. I'm, anybody that knows me, I'm, I'm not Debbie Downer, you know, trying to make everybody down about everything going on. Uh, you know, the, but the reality is, because of sin in the world, because of sin in our own lives, because of what we're living under, living under this curse when the fall, those times are going to come where life is going to be hard and it's going to be difficult. And so what is the Lord doing in our lives? He's teaching us to learn to trust in his wisdom and his grace and his love and his purpose. He's on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And so God asserts himself into our lives for our good and for his glory. And if it's for his glory, that's enough. I mean, that's enough. But he works in our lives so that we might begin to taste his glory and experience the riches of his grace and prepare us for living with him forever. And when we begin to see that, we worship. 
Second thing, no one, you'll notice that refrain, no one was able, no one had the capability or the worthiness to open this book. And so John's eyes are fixed upon this book. Verse 2, he says that he saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, literally a mega voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? In other words, who is worthy to open this book and to govern redemption, judgment, and all of the details of life? Who has the wisdom and the power and the righteousness and the justice to exercise that kind of decisive reign over the creation? Well, John wants to hear the answer to that question, so he pauses and he watches, and no one steps up. I mean, when he heard that angel calling for someone worthy to open, uh, the, the, to take the book and, and to break the seals and open it, he was waiting. There had to be someone that could unfold all these details that have been purposed by God Almighty. And you'll notice in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, no one was found who was able to open the book or to look into it. Now, think about the scene. John is gazing in heaven, and he sees these four living creatures, and he sees the 24 elders, and there are, are multitudes of uh, individuals around. And out of all of that, there was no one that was worthy to open the book or to discharge the details. No one had the worth. No one had the power. No one had the ability. No one could do it. None. And so despair began to set in. And you'll notice in verse 4 that John says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. This is what John realized. Exiled on the Isle of Patmos, having gone through great suffering, an old man at this time, alienated from his friends, his loved ones, the body of Christ. He realized that if there's no one able, if the Lord is not able to discharge those details in our lives, then all of the sorrows and the suffering and the trials that we have have absolutely no purpose. They just kind of end on themselves, and that's it. They're just random, and God is scurrying around, panicking, wondering what is going to happen to this creation. You see, if no one is worthy to open the book and so be able to comprehend with power and wisdom its contents, and no one is worthy to look into it and so carry out its decrees, then how does that affect our hope when we face suffering and trials? I mean, if there's no one to govern those details, then what happens when the doctor calls and he gives you this bad diagnosis? What happens when you find out some other news where your life is just turned absolutely upside down? You just live by chance. Just hope things work out. I remember asking uh, a young lady uh, what hope was and if hope had any part in her life. And she said, no, I don't believe in hope. I just believe in luck. <laughs> I thought, well, where is that going to get you? So you have some good luck. Great. What happens when the bad luck comes, as, as it would be called? Well, everything just becomes random. We start living by four-leaf clovers, and if you're from my generation, by lucky rabbit's feet. 
uh, but we'll go into that later. Uh, you know, the, the reality is we cannot live life with joy and satisfaction. We cannot press on in the middle of difficult days without hope that is found in Jesus Christ and without someone being worthy to open the book and discharge the details in a wise, purposeful way, then we have totally lost hope. You see, hope sustains the present because of the certainty that the Lord has the details in hand. Nothing slips through. Not one cancer cell slips through. Not one. Not one blood clot slinging slips through without him handling the details. Not one trouble, uh, troubling incident unfolding slips through without the eternal love of the one who sits on the throne issuing for our greater good and for his eternal purpose. And so John reacts because he understands that the book that was written by the Almighty delivers us from a random life that simply assumes that if we can just be positive, everything is going to go our way. I've had a number of folks tell me, I'm, I'm thinking positive thoughts for you. And I thought, great. I'm glad I'd rather you do that than negative thoughts. But it's not going to change anything. It, it's just not, I mean, that's just totally self-effort. There's no positive spin on human trafficking or abortion, or murder, or corruption, or pride, or, or prejudice, or countless other daily occurrences. Positive people are not immune to suffering and loss and trials. It's just part of our living together in a fallen world. After my cancer diagnosis, one of our church members gave me a very well-worn copy of a, of a small book that was written by the 17th century Scottish covenanter Samuel Rutherford. It's called The Loveliness of Christ, and I would commend it to you. Just, just little clips from Rutherford. If you know anything about him, he's an extraordinary pastor and wrote all kinds of letters, and you read his letters, and you go, I'll never get to that point of being able to do anything remotely close to that. Well, my friend inscribed a note on it, and he told me how helpful it had been to him in the death of his son and he had a son that was born with birth defect and lived until he was 13 and then and then died and he highlighted a number of things one one of those was a note that Rutherford wrote to a parent that had lost his child and he put it like this the child hath but changed a bed in the garden and his and is planted up higher nearer the sun where he shall thrive better than in this outfield in moor ground. Yeah, you got to get the Scottish brogue in there. You know, so, you know, he's given this picture. He, he's thinking of the, the, the moors where people get stuck. And he said, no, what the Lord has done when he took your child, he brought her up closer to the sun where he's going to thrive. I've watched his family for a, a long time, and I've witnessed their joy and their hope in Christ. Does, does that mean they've never suffered and had difficult days? No. They've had them. But they've realized that in, in all of that, it's the loveliness of Christ whose purpose ripens for his beloved that raises their hopes and gives them joy as they anticipate the glory that lies ahead. Well, thank God for a heavenly elder. You'll, you'll notice 
that John is just so distraught. And in verse 5, one of the elders comes to him and says, Stop weeping. Now, think about it. Here's a guy just bawling his eyes out. A guy that was exiled, a guy that was suffering, a guy that was alienated. Was that a cruel thing to say? Well, John had to think about his own plight in, in what was happening. How could he go on without someone wisely unfolding the details he was walking through and doing it for his good? And so the angel says, or, or the elder says, Now, John, stop your weeping. Behold, look, stop and look. That's what behold means. It's not just, no, it's stop and look. See this. Look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and to break its seven seals. You see, for the believer, despair can set in only when we lose sight of the hope that is ours in Christ. And we do lose sight of that a lot of times. And so... What John is doing in Revelation 5, he's helping us to retrieve that hope in Christ in every circumstance. You see, if there is no Jesus Christ who has overcome to open the book and to unpack its details, then yes, despair and wallow in self-pity and weep with no comfort. But that's not the case. Jesus has overcome so that he might display wisdom and grace and power in his reign over every detail in our lives. So despair no longer. He took the book and he opened it. The third thing is a lion that has overcome. Now all attention is centered on the lion because that's what the elder told, uh, told John to see. Uh, there, there is this one who's worthy to open the book and to, op- and to break its seals. In other words, there is one who is worthy and who has overcome so he can do that and he can work in our ups and our downs and our sufferings and flourishing, our joys and our trials. If there is one that is able to do that, then John could go on at peace. Well, how does this angel or this, uh, this el- heavenly elder identify him? Uh, he calls him the lion from the tribe of Judah. But what, what he's doing, he's, he's going back to Genesis 49 where Jacob was giving a blessing to, to his sons and he identified Judah as a lion's whelp and that the scepter would never leave Judah. In other words, it was not uh, Reuben, the Otis, that was going to have the lineage of the reign it was going to be Judah, who was number four out of the, the sons of Jacob. And then he says he's from the root of David, and we pick up on Isaiah 11.1 1, in Second Samuel 7, verses 13 through 16, where David was promised to be king, and there would be one who would descend from him who would reign forever. And so what he's doing, he's using messianic language. And he, he's taking all that the Old Testament predicted and all that the New Testament declares concerning Jesus Christ, that the king whose kingdom never ends, whose reign never wavers, whose wisdom has no boundaries, whose power never fails, whose love cannot be measured, that's the one that this elder describes. And he's worthy to open the book and to break the seals. It is this king alone that is worthy to order the most difficult details of your life. You, you remember how Paul wrote in Romans eight twenty eight, 
for God causes all things to work to, for good for those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Because Jesus is worthy, because he took the book, because he broke the seals, because he started discharging those details. That's why Romans 8.28 means something. That means he can take the good, the bad, and the ugly of our lives and synchronize them. The one who justifies us, in Romans 8, says also glorifies us so that nothing is wasted or worthless or useless in between. But what had to be overcome for him to take the book and to break its seals and discharge its contents? The curse had to be overcome. That which wrecked the creation and the harmony of the human race in Genesis 3, that had to be overcome. And so it took the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ to do it. That's the sin-bearing, the Satan-crushing, the curse-spoiling, death-destroying, atonement-applying work of Jesus at the cross and in that empty tomb. What the seal-breaker and the book-opener has been doing all these years is carrying out his faithful offices as our prophet, priest, and king. So I have cancer because Adam opened the floodgates to all kinds of disease and corruption and death when he sinned. The curse came and it brought down humanity and it affected and distorted everything in the creation. And everything we touch and everything we see has the glint of the fall on it. That means that when we see the beauty of creation as extraordinary as it is, It pales in significance in comparison to what will be. When we see the wonder of the human body, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that we don't yet even know what it's going to be like. It's going to be glory. Well, it is Jesus conquering at the cross that overturns the, the curse in all of its effects and restores not just us but the creation. I mean, think of it like this. God put... Adam in the garden, he was to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over every living thing that moves on the earth, and he didn't. He failed, and it affected all of us. And yet all the while, the Father had prepared the Son to come and overcome all that had been corrupted and wrecked regarding the creation through the fall and restoring it through laying down his life at the cross so that he might take up that wise, righteous rule. The curse had to be overcome in order for us to live in any kind of hope. And he did it at the cross, and he did it in the resurrection so that what God has ordained for us now, we can glory in. The fourth thing we see is a lamb slain and standing. John looks for the lion. He turns around and he says in in verse 6, And I saw in the midst of the throne with the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders a lamb standing as one having been slaughtered as a sacrifice. Literally, slaughtered as a sacrifice, never to be slaughtered again. The overcomer did his overcoming work as the Lamb of God. He was the one that fulfilled the Passover. He fulfilled all of those Old Testament sacrifices that were done. 
He fulfilled what was happening on the Day of Atonement. He did it once for all. He took eternal justice on himself at the cross, and he bore the full blunt of it, and he was slaughtered for us at the cross. But John says he, he was also standing. The lamb is standing. He died a real death, this vicious, bloody, sacrificial, substitutionary, effective death, but he's standing, so he is alive. He is risen from the dead. And that figure of the lamb standing as if slain is the measure and certainty of our hope. It's the measure of our hope because if we are united to him in the new birth, justified by him through his death for us, joined to him in dying to sin and being united to him in the resurrection, then we have hope. I mean, think about how far the resurrection affected Jesus. It raised him up in glory. He was raised by the glory of the Father. He died in weakness, and he rose in strength and power and glory. And he was exalted by the Father. Now he joins us to him in that resurrection, in all of its triumph and in all of its glory. And because of that, he is the guarantee that the power of sin and the effects of the fall cannot imprison us. No cancer, no abandonment, no heart disease, no persecution, no physical, emotional brokenness can last because the Lamb standing is the measure of our hope and what we will be. And He is also the certainty of our hope. The Lamb takes with Him all that he has redeemed. You remember he told the disciples as, as he was getting ready to go to the cross, I'm coming back to get you and I'm going to take you where I am that you might be with me forever. He doesn't lose anything. No one can pluck us out of his hand. Paul reiterated in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And it is that kind of love that has its ultimate fulfillment when we're in his presence. So if we see the slaughtered lamb standing, then we have to agree that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that was to be revealed to us. The fifth thing, there are seven horns, seven eyes, seven spirits. Now that's weird kind of language, isn't it? Well, what are, what are these seven horns and seven eyes? The seven horns represent authority, power, uh, the omniscience of the Lord. The seven eyes, he sees everything perfectly, represents his, uh, his omniscience, the other, his omnipotence, excuse me. And so what he's doing in that picture, he's saying here's this lamb with seven horns. He has all power. Here's this lamb that has seven eyes. He sees absolutely everything. He has infinite wisdom. There is nothing, nothing that we experience that can slide by his wisdom or somehow or another undercut his power. And then he says, these are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's the Holy Spirit that has been sent in wisdom and power to accomplish the details of Christ's reign. He is sent out so there is no experience, no encounter we have, no difficulty we face, no rogue cell that we possess that escapes the powerful, wise application of the Spirit in our lives. You see that good Trinitarian emphasis here. The sixth thing, the Lamb took the book. All of this has just been introduction until you get to, to verse 7. And here's the point. He came and he took the book 
out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. The way it's written is he took the book. No one else takes it. He takes it forever. He took it. He laid down his life for the sheep. He promised to prepare a place for us and that he would come and get us. He promised he would never leave us or forsake us. He sits at the, at the Father's right hand interceding for us. So when I got that bad news call from the doctor, the one thing that encouraged me, and I kept thinking about it as I was riding back to my house that day, was he took the book. He took the book. Does that mean there's no more difficulty? No, it doesn't mean that. Not, not until we see him in all of his glory. But it means that in our longings, in our ambitions, we aim for glory, not comfort. We look for eternal joys, not just momentary pleasures. You see, when, when the Lamb took the book, uh, took the book, it was heaven declaring, he reigns, he reigns, Jesus reigns forevermore. And brothers and sisters, that is our hope and our comfort. One last thing, seventh, so let's join in worship. I mean, what happened when this heavenly scene saw him take the book out of the Father's right hand? All heaven broke out in worship. Now, you've got to think about this they saw something that we need to see. Their vision was unclouded by the pain and the sorrow and losing your job and getting bad news and, and all kinds of tragedies happening. Their, their vision was unclouded by that. They saw things as they really are. And they even knew about the suffering of the martyrs. You see that in Revelation 6. But when they saw him take the, take the book, it says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures... And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one having, holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They kept singing new songs. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for your God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Were they fretting? I mean, there was chaos going on on earth at that point. Absolute chaos. People were suffering. Life was hard. Now they worshipped because they knew that the Lamb had taken the book. At the very sight of that picture, it caused them to worship. So brothers and sisters, let's keep writing those new songs because the Lamb took the book. Let's keep glorying in the mercies and grace and power of our Lord that is inexhaustible because he took the book. Let's never let our worship become perfunctory and dull and lifeless because our king reigns with wisdom and power. He took the book. Let's not waste our sufferings and groan and moan to the point where we crawl into a shell and have a pity party. The lamb took the book. So let's worship. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, there's so much in this picture that we've yet to comprehend. Will you please open our eyes? Will you please open our hearts to trust in you and to know worship in ways that we've never experienced to your glory? 
we pray in Jesus' name.